All right. We love you guys. You can head on out. Love you. Miss you. Bye-bye. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We are going to be... <laughs> Let me just say this. Some, some churches, children are a distraction. Let me tell you, children are a sign of life for a church. Okay? And so let's continue to embrace their energy and their love and to encourage them to grow in their faith. And let's learn something about their enthusiasm. Okay? So, anyway. So we, are, we took a five-week uh, hiatus from uh, the, the, our study of Matthew, our 70-week walk through the book of Matthew, uh, for a, a mini-series called Sabotage, where we are looking at ways that we uh, potentially impact negatively um, relationships and how the gospel addresses those things. Now we're jumping back into our 21st week of Matthew. And this morning, it is an interesting topic. Um, even I had a conversation uh, with Bubba about, hey, Dad, so do you believe that there's really our demons? And it's like, absolutely. And here is proof number one. So would you stand with me as we, we will be reading, starting at verse 28 of chapter 8. And we'll be reading through chapter 9, verse 8. But let's uh, pray and ask for God's blessing before we start. Father, we pray that we would be instructed by your word of truth. Lord, may we see who you are in all your glory, in all your splendor. May we also see in light of Scripture who we are, our brokenness, our need for you, Lord and Savior. Lord, would you even open our eyes by your Spirit this morning to see how you are one to be feared by your strength, your majesty, your power. So now, Lord, by your Spirit, would you apply your word to our hearts and our circumstances. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of Christ speaks to us like this. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. 
And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Chapter 9. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word, Lord. You may be seated. So let me ask you a, a generic statement. A generic statement. And this generic statement is actually a crowd participation moment, okay? So get ready for those of you who love to do it. I know there's some of you who are just waiting every time for crowd participation. The rest of you are like, oh, Lord. Don't, don't call on me. Um, so if I were to ask you this question, who is Jesus to you? How would you answer? One or two word statements. Savior, Lord. Redeemer. My only hope. What was it? Ignore him. Anyone else? So, so if you would respond to that, like he, he's the Lord, he's the Savior. You might also hear he's the Son of God. He, he's, he's the Lamb of God. He's a prophet. He's, he's a Savior. He's a perfect sacrifice. He's the Prince of Peace. He, he's Lord or he's a ruler. And all of those things are absolutely 100% true. But the question is, who is he to you? To you. And the reason why I ask this question is one day. Philippians chapter 2 says this At the name of Jesus, every knee, every single knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does that mean, that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and say that Jesus Christ is mean? Well, the Bible tells us that one day, at the end of this age, every single person will acknowledge that Jesus truly is Lord. Everyone who will see and see him and know who he really is. But that day, my friends, will not be happy and joyful for everyone. On that day, there will be two kinds of people. Those who know him and love him. And then there are those who have rejected him and will fear him on that day. 
He will be a savior to one group, and he will be the judge and jury for the other group. One will be saved from the eternal punishment by the sacrifice on the cross, and the other one will suffer eternal separation in hell because of their sinful rebellion. And that is why the question, who is Jesus to you, is actually a very important question. Who is he to you? Because at the end of the day, Jesus will either be your savior or he will be your judge. So the title of my sermon this week is this. Would you be afraid of Jesus? Would you be afraid of Jesus? And I'd like to suggest to you that often we don't even think of being afraid of Jesus as an option. Why? Because often I think we, we, we would much rather think of Jesus as a softer, gentler kind of image that we might see in a Jesus storybook Bible or maybe somebody who is kind of Barney-like or Mr. Rogers-esque, comforting and calming. And Jesus is certainly kind. He is gentle. He is meek. And he is comforting. But that picture is not complete. It's not complete. One of my favorite uh, books that I, that I read when I was a fifth grade teacher in Mokina, and one that I highly encourage people to read is the book by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Phenomenal story. Phenomenal story. And in that story, there is this Adam who who is kind of a Christ-like lion. He's majestic. He's strong. He's powerful. And one of the characters was asked, what is he like? And this was the response. He is not safe. But he's good. He is not safe. But he is good. And we get that that clear taste here in this section. Jesus does a lot of good in this passage, right? A lot of good. Heals people. But none of it really is safe. In fact, Jesus' actions actually make people afraid. And I'd like for you to see why. And there are three different reasons why, why people are afraid of Jesus. And I want show you that if you don't know Jesus, then you actually have a reason to be afraid. So let me walk through these these three reasons. But a little backstory. First, we are in a kind of this section in Matthew 8 through 10 where we are learning all about the the power and the authority that Jesus has. We've already seen in uh, back the, our 20th um, sermon in this series, where Jesus cleansed a leper, touched an unclean person, and the crowd oohed and awed and was aghast that, that Jesus would actually touch this unclean And then we also saw a servant being restored to their health, or an old woman that was cured instantly. We also saw his, his authority over the, the sea. The storm was immediately stopped. And if you go back, look at that that last verse, verse 27. The men who were in the boat with Jesus said this. What sort of man is this? 
that even the winds and the sea obey him. I have never seen anybody say stop and the winds stop. The waters quit raging. Who is this kind of man? So that, that section, we, we get Jesus has authority. He has power. And now our passage gives us two more miracles. The exorcism of a demon-possessed man and the healing of a lame man. But embedded, if you read carefully, embedded in these stories are people who are afraid of Jesus. And let's learn why. Here's the first one. Verse 28 indicates that Jesus crossed into the Sea of Galilee to an area called the Gadarenes. Now, this area was definitely a Gentile area. It, it was uh, where Jewish people did not even want to go into, and you can tell that it was a, a Gentile area because no good Jewish person would be raising pigs for a living. No good Jewish person. They, they, those are unclean animals. Bacon, sadly, off limits to Jewish people. And this was the market for bacon. So Jesus comes now into this area, the Gadarenes, and he comes into contact with two demon-possessed men who lived where? Not at the Hyatt, not in regular homes. He lived in tombs, in tombs. And not only did they live peacefully, they didn't live, live, live peacefully in tombs, they terrorized people. Nobody dared to go into that region. These were terrifying men. And Mark chapter 5 gives a parallel story. Uh, there's some additional information about these, these men. This is what Mark chapter 5 said. They lived among the tombs and no one could bind him, talking specifically about one man, anymore. Not even with a chain, for he had been... A, he had often been bound by shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That is the kind of character Jesus was coming into contact with as he was coming into this region. Now, now when these demon-possessed men met Jesus, they treated him with hostility. It wasn't like, hey, why don't you come in for a cup of coffee? The, notice that they weren't talking with Jesus. They, they were screaming at him. The word here means to shriek or to, to cry out. It's the same word used in Matthew chapter 14 when the disciples thought that Jesus was a ghost walking on the water. Their statements were interesting. What do you have to do with us? Why are you here, O Son of God? What? Why? And they also said, have you come to torment us before the time? The, the first statement was just a fear, panic question. What are you doing here? And you'll see that Jesus is invading into their area. And the demon-possessed men did not like it at all. What are you doing here? This is our domain. But the second comment gives a hint as to why they are screaming at him. The demon 
who Jesus is. O Son of God. Ask if he has come to judge. Apparently the demons know that there is a day coming. Even the demons know that there is a day coming where Jesus will hold them accountable. And they are worried that his presence at that time is, it's going to happen. It's going to happen now. So you got to understand, demons are not all-knowing. They don't know really what's going on. But Jesus, they recognized him coming. And they are going, today's the day. Today's the day. Oh my goodness. Today's the day. And fear struck in their heart. So these men were afraid of Jesus because of his very presence. And his presence has power to expose evil. That's one thing. And if you read Mark and Luke's account, you'll find that Jesus asked this man, what is your name? What is your name? And the man said, legion, because he has many demons in him. So Jesus' mere presence threatens their control of this man. And that is what Jesus does to evil men or to evil deeds. He exposes them. And the Bible frequently talks about Jesus or the gospel in this way. Listen to John chapter 3. We often just look at John chapter 3 for a certain favorite uh, verse, right? John 3, 16. But listen to what follows John 3.16 and John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. Notice that John says that people love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. They love their life. Notice that people don't want their deeds to be exposed, so they do not even come to light. They hate the light. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Satan's strategy, friends, Satan's one of Satan's primary strategies is to blind people from the truth. He doesn't want them to know that they are sinners. He doesn't want them to think about eternity. He doesn't want them to be looking carefully at their lives. The devil wants you to be addicted. He wants you to be aimless. He wants you to be hopeless and, and thinking that you really are happy. I don't need this, Jesus. I'm happy right here. He wants you full of shame of self-confidence. He, he doesn't want Jesus telling you that 
what you are really like or shining the light of truth into your hearts to say, this is you. Do you see it? Some people, my friends, are afraid of Jesus because he actually exposes who they are. They're miserable. But they're afraid that Jesus will expose them. So they're afraid of him. Here's the second thing. Jesus creates costly consequences. So the story shifts from the men to the city in a little bit. In verse 31, uh, the demons just beg Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs. And apparently, they, these demons just long to possess something. So if it's not going to be these two men, how about these pigs? So I'm going to trust that you, you understand that demon possession is actually a real thing. In my high school days, there came out a book. It was actually, I think, a trilogy by Frank Peretti. And the book was called This Present Darkness. How many, just out of curiosity, have read that? Okay, a few of you have read This Present Darkness. I'll be honest with you, it, it was very popular, and yet at the same time it was controversial. I don't agree with everything uh, that the book, how he wrote about uh, spiritual warfare, but I think it's helpful for us to really remember that there is real spiritual warfare with unseen forces. And I often really wonder if we are a bit too naive and maybe Western in how we look at the world. We're a little naive. The enemy wants people to be blind, addicted, and happy. Isn't it possible that there is more to those sins and the vehicles of sin that than meets the eye? Isn't there possibly something you are struggling with this long-lasting, abiding sin that just seems to have, if you will, hooks and talons in your heart. Is it possible that maybe there's something more going on? I, I, I really believe that there are evil spiritual forces attempting to advance and promote abortion, advance and promote pornography, advance and promote substance abuse, evolution, other issues, you, you fill in the blank. I really believe it's true. And I believe that there are some people who are knowingly and unknowingly empowered by evil forces to do so. I believe it. I believe that there are, are, are sections in our country, maybe in our city, that are, are being controlled under the, over, the oppressive control of the enemy. And I want you to see our world a little bit different. It's not just politics. It's not just having a struggle. But there's actually spiritual oppression that is taking place. But here's the beauty. If you look in verse 32, what does Jesus do? He gives one word, one command. He gives a one-word command. He says, go. He says, go. And immediately the demons, in between 3,000 and 6,000, rush out of these men and took control of the pigs, causing them to careen into the sea and drown. 
Can you imagine this scene? Just imagine it for a moment. These men who are terrifying by nature, who come out screaming from the tombs, nobody dares to go near these areas because he terrorizes them left and right. And he comes out screaming at Jesus, and all of a sudden the demons inside recognize who it is, and they, the demons speak through the man and just say, hey, are you here? What are you doing here? Is, is our time for judgment? How about you send this into the pigs? And immediately, all this herd of pigs goes flying over the cliff into the sea. That, that is Hollywood material right there. Watching all that happen. But what we need to be paying attention is not this dramatic death of the pigs who are suddenly demon-possessed. But what we need to pay attention is to the effect that the, it had on the herdsmen and on the city. The herdsmen ran back to the city to tell everyone, whoever would listen, they said, listen, this is what happened. This is what took place. And Luke's account gives a great picture of what happened next. Luke chapter 8. Then people went to, out to see what happened. They couldn't believe it. It's like, what? And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizines asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat, and he returned. Notice that they were afraid of what happened to the man. And they, they wanted Jesus, get out of here, leave. Isn't that curious to you? There, there's part of me that goes, who, like back in chapter 8. What sort of man is this? Who has a power and authority over the winds and the waves? Who is this? Wouldn't that be a natural question that just kind of pops into your head? Of, We've known these men. It's, they've terrorized us for years. We can't even find them. He's clothed. And in his right mind. And, but instead of marveling that these men had been delivered, been saved, made whole, instead of rejoicing over the, the presence of Christ's divine power, they wanted him to leave. Rather than deal with the reality of what had happened, they simply asked him, leave us alone. The deliverance of the men was too costly for the city. The consequences of their deliverance was just too painful. One scholar, his name's D.A. Carson, says this. They preferred pigs to persons, swine to Savior. And my friends, how often I have seen people afraid of Jesus because of the consequences. I've seen people afraid because Jesus calls them to actually repent of their sins. Because following him requires costly, painful decisions, actions. Or because life seemed much easier prior to learning the truth about who they are. 
Let me give you a few examples. Maybe a, a young, saved, single man who knows he shouldn't be dating a saved person does it anyway. It doesn't have to be a saved, young, single man. It can be a, any single man or single woman dating an unsaved person, but does it anyway. Or a young woman who, who wants to fill the hole in their heart so bad that she latches onto anything male, knowing that it's just an idol. Or, or an un, uh, unmarried person continues to live with somebody else, even though they know, they know what God says about marriage and sexuality. Or, or a married couple who refuses to deal honestly with each other's sin just because it's easier just to not talk about it. Or parents who don't ask their kids hard personal questions because they don't want to know the answers. Jesus challenges the status quo. He creates costly consequences, and some people are afraid of that. They should, should have been rejoicing over what happened and, and recognize that maybe there's hope for me too. But they couldn't get past the pigs. So it's just easier to ask him to leave. What is it for you? You recognize the cost of following Christ. But are there sections in your life where you just say, you know what, Jesus, I, I just need you to let, let that alone. I need you to give me some space because actually I like that pig better than I like you. Here's the third thing. Jesus creates an encounter with power. This is chapter 9. This, this, Jesus leaves the, the area, the Gentile region, and now he moves to Capernaum. And verse 2 tells us that some people brought to him a paralyzed man who was lying on a bed. Now, if you look, there's, there's all kinds of parallel uh, versions of this story that are found throughout the gospel and you've got to understand that each gospel writer tells it from their vantage point and for the purpose of telling the story of the gospel so in mark chapter 2 he tells us that jesus went home and many people gathered to hear him and the friends the friends could not get their friend to jesus so what did they do in mark chapter 2 they went through the the roof cleared off the thatch area, and they did what? They lowered their friend to get to Jesus. So when Jesus saw the extraordinary faith of this man's friends, what did Jesus say? He said, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. When he saw whose faith? The faith of the friends. It's interesting because the healing was based on the friend's faith, not the man's faith. And secondly, it's interesting because Jesus links this man's illness to his sins. Now, I want to give a sidebar here. And I want you all to listen very closely to this. Because some of you are going to take certain sections of this and you are going to grossly misapply it to every situation in life. 
Okay? So hear this very clearly. Uh, not all people get sick because of their sin. Did we all hear that? Not all people get sick of their, because of their sins. But this verse indicates that there is some kind of connection. We would do well here to, to see the balance that the Bible gives when it comes to the connection to our sicknesses and sin. Three things should be noticed. One, the ultimate root of all sickness is sin. If it was not for the fall, not one of us would ever get a cold. Not one of us would ever get COVID. No one would be stubbing their, their toes. There would be no hurt. There'd be no pain. There'd be no death, no suffering, no nothing. Okay? But there is, because of the fall, there is a connection to sickness and sin. But secondly, we need to notice that some sickness is caused by sin. Some. But we should also notice that some sickness is not caused by our personal sin. And I think that our present Christian culture rarely, rarely if ever, considers that sickness could be connected to some specific sin. We automatically just run to the doctor. I need some amoxicillin. I need a shot of Vicks real quick like just to help me get through the night because it's just a drink. There's a possibility that your sickness may be connected to sin. And apparently, it was connected here in this story. The the scribes were, were listening to the teaching of Jesus, and they were not pleased with Jesus granting forgiveness to this man. And Jesus sensed it. I love how it, it Jesus also kind of picks up, knowing what was in their heart. Because did you pick that up? Jesus, verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? It's just a, a picture of his divinity, right, in that moment. Only could he read the room, but he, he knew their very thoughts. And this was the first recorded conflict of Jesus with the religious establishment in Matthew. And they probably thought that Jesus talked about forgiveness because he wasn't able to heal them. Oh, go ahead. Talk about forgiveness, Jesus. Yep. You think you're the Messiah. But Jesus decided to do what? Jesus aims to prove his actual divine authority, his divine power in that moment. And that's why Jesus said, listen, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. And with that, he turned to the paralytic and said, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the young man did what? Immediately. Immediately he got up and went home. Now, another one of those kind of shocking pictures because everybody knew, especially his friends, knew this man's condition in life. It was a, he's up. He's walking. Check it out. This is amazing. But notice, if you will, again, the crowd's response. When the crowd saw it, they were what? They were afraid. 
And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. It's interesting to note how other trans, uh, translations of the Bible render that, that phrase, they were afraid. The NASB, they were awestruck and glorified God. The NIV, NIV said, they were filled with awe and they praised God. The New King James Version said, they marveled and glorified God. The NLT says, fear swept through the crowd and they praised God. Why, why can we not just get a simple phrase that is the same in every version? It's because we do not have a word in our English vernacular that captures both the emotions of fear, amazement, and joy in one word. The Greek was able to. And they understood at that day. So I would call this word frightening joy. Frightening joy. A beautiful and traumatic mix of emotions that you feel when something amazing, unexplainable, and life-changing happens. The same word is used by Matthew to describe how a soldier felt at the crucifixion of Jesus. This kind of fear is, is different than when the demon-possessed man or the community out there felt. This is a fear that comes from knowing that something beyond yourself, something otherworldly, something divine is in our midst. Something happened here that we cannot explain. That is the kind of power that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when talking about our gathered worship. Paul said, listen, if an outsider, uh, an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Friends, the goal of what takes place up here should not be emotional manipulation by uh, gifted musicians or singers. Hear that. I will never want us to hire a gifted musician because they can wow you. Never. Our goal in worship, our goal in preaching, is that you may say, God is in our midst. That is the goal of worship, where you can say, I have come to experience and to see Christ in our midst. For you to experience His love, His power, His forgiveness, His life change. That is our goal. Through music, through song, through confession, through our assurance of pardon, when we come to dine with Him at His table, when you are sent out with the, the benediction at the end, all of those things culminate in the, the desire that you may say, God is really amongst us. And my friends, that kind of fear that the people in Capernaum and the, what Paul was talking about to the church in, in Corinth is actually a good fear. It's, it's a reverential fear. It's a, a, 
respectful fear. It's the coming to the realization of who Jesus really is, who you really are, and what this God, this Son of God, can do in your hearts. And this is the frightening joy of knowing who Jesus is and thanking God that you now see it. My eyes are open. My chains are down. are the moments. And I, I pray for those kind of shackles to be dropped. The, the, the veils on your eyes to be removed so that you can see Christ and what He's doing, what He's capable of doing. It, listen, here's a picture given to us in Revelation chapter 5. And I, I pray for us to really grasp this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Who is this lamb? Jesus. As though it has been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went up and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of saints. And they sang a new song, really quiet to themselves, really reverentially. Now, I'm sure in this moment, recognizing this Lamb that's in the midst of them, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a voice, a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing with one loud voice. Oh, Presbyterians, may you be loud. And, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth in the sea and all that is in them saying this so in one great big loud voice they said could you imagine every creature to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped My friends, that is worship. What we do here is just a, it's a small practicing foretaste of heaven. And the reason that heaven is bowing to him because of the power and the authority and the character of who he actually is. And that brings me back to my very first question. Who is Jesus to you? He is either your Savior or your judge. He 
is evil. He creates costly consequences. And he creates an encounter with his divine power. And the question is, do you know him? Are you willing to follow him wherever he goes? Are you willing to be obedient to him? And my friends, if you are not and if you do not know him, here's a warning. You have reason to be afraid. And I pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room or listening live stream who does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, the one who has power and authority to forgive you from your sins and to heal you from all the brokenness in your life, I pray that you will respond in faith to Christ and say with your heart, you truly are God. For those of you who are in Christ, I pray that understanding who this God is, this Savior is, that it will transform our gatherings. That when guests and visitors walk in, they go, I don't know what's going on, but this is otherworldly. I had an encounter with, with God. I've come to know Jesus personally. And he has now placed me into a family of faith. I pray that this understanding of who he is helps you understand how we leave. We don't leave in fear and timidity. We leave by his power, with his care, his provision, his love. Because we know that wherever we go, he's with us. His spirit, the spirit of Christ dwells within us. The, the, this Jesus that we just talked about, that Jesus, the spirit of Christ, now dwells within us. It changes the way we do evangelism. It changes the way that we, how we address our personal sin. It changes the way that we love. I could keep on going. The most important question is, who is this Christ? question for lunch today.